Welcome to Embargo, intelligent talk about sanctions, export controls, and international trade for and all things international trade for trade nerds and normal human beings alike. I'm one of your hosts, Tim O'Toole, and with me today I have two uh, impressive and exciting co-hosts, uh, John Boscariel, who is the leader of the International Trade and Investment Group at McCarthy Tetro in uh, Toronto, and Stacey Keen, who is a partner at Pinson Masons in Edinburgh. So, John and Stacy, welcome. Thank you, Tim. Great to be here. I echo that. Great. Great to have you both. And what I wanted to do today, and I'm really glad to have you on the podcast, is have a discussion about, first of all, um, just a comparative discussion about sanctions generally in the kind of post-Russia February 2022 sanctions period. And then we're going to dive deep into uh, issues related to uh, issues related to ownership and control, because that is an area where uh, the U.S., the EU, Canada, and the U.K. all have taken slightly competing approaches. And so it'll be interesting to talk about some of the, you know, some of the, the pluses and minuses of each approach. But with that, I wanted to turn it over to John to just kind of give us a, a 50,000 foot view of Canadian sanctions. Um, we've had uh, some discussion on embargoed uh, that has focused deeply on UK sanctions, on uh, EU sanctions, and in particular, we've looked at the Netherlands and Germany, but we haven't looked at Canada. And so today, um, you know, we'll, we'll turn it over to John to kind of teach us some about Canadian sanctions uh, just generally and, and how they've changed or maybe, uh, you know, gotten more intense with respect to the, the, the crisis in Ukraine. So John, take it from there. Great. Th thank you, Tim. And great to be here with you and Stacy. And um, first, let me say I'm a great fan of the Embargoed podcast. And so it's exciting to actually be now speaking on it. Um, yeah, on the Canadian side, uh, uh, let me first give you a, a, a bit of an overview of the sanctions regime in Canada, and then we can get into some of the challenges, including this issue of ownership and control. But we have another an, a number of other challenges, I would say, in Canada, um, particularly when we look at the interaction of um, U.S., EU, U.K., and Canadian sanctions, whether it's Russia or um, other sanctions targets. That seems to be driving a lot of what we spend our time on. Uh, uh, it's not; it's rare that we have a Canadian-only sanctions issue, and that's just the nature, I think, of this practice. That um, when someone's doing business internationally, they have touch points in various jurisdictions. So the key becomes really a, us, I think, as sanctions lawyers, is really being able to deal with those touch points and the interactions of these regimes and sometimes um, the inconsistencies and conflicts. And among let me these stop regimes. you there, John. So one, one thing that I've noticed really in the last two years has been that sanctions investigations have gotten much more complicated, at least from the US side, because prior to February of 2022, we weren't really thinking a lot about the other jurisdictional touch points, because often it was just seen from a U.S. perspective, and this might, you know, be my U.S. side talking. The, the U.S. sanctions were really the ones that were that people were worried about, and there might be other touch points. But you and you could figure out a jurisdictional analysis that would get you to another jurisdiction. But companies usually weren't even interested enough to pay for the analysis. In the last year and a half, what I've seen is that. Canada, the EU, the US, or the UK, every time you have a sanctions question, particularly if it's a big sanctions question in, in the course of an investigation or sometimes a large transaction, the clients are now asking, so what does Canada say? What does the EU say? What does the what does the UK say? Is that I mean, is that consistent with your experience? Or I, I know you're coming from Canada, so you're going to see a lot more Canada sanctions questions. But the, the multinational nature of these questions is just new and, and really intense as far as I've seen. Yeah, I, I think, um, and it's, that's a good segue into what the developments have been on the Canadian side. I, I think over the last 15 years, 
Um, you've seen Canada become what some might say a sanctions hawk. I think traditionally the view has been the U.S. is the high watermark when it comes to sanctions. So the most aggressive set of sanctions will be the United States. And frequently um, over the years, we've seen companies take the view that, well, if I'm complying with the U.S. measures, then I must be in compliance with those of Canada, uh, maybe even U.K. and E.U. Um, and and it's... Um, uh, I don't blame them for taking that view because I think in the distant past that was the case. I think, though, what we've seen in the last 15 years, and it's become particularly intensive with respect to the Russia sanctions, but even we saw this start to happen in, in the 2000 aughts when Canada started taking more aggressive measures on Belarus, Burma, Iran, North Korea, we started seeing more and more scenarios where the Canadian sanctions were actually more aggressive than the U.S. sanctions. And uh, we started getting more files where um, companies thought they were fine because they were following the U.S. sanctions. They were screening against the U.S. lists and didn't realize they ran into a Canadian sanctions issue. And as a result, they got tied up. Um, and, you know, we had to do voluntary disclosures and, and deal with issues like that. Um, I think what has happened, although Canada has been becoming more aggressive, um, they did not put the investment into uh, the administration of those measures and even the enforcement of those measures. So um, despite the fact that we have very broadly worded sanctions, and in many cases, um, they will be more aggressive than those of the EU, UK, and the United States. Um, there is uh, little guidance on how we interpret those, and frankly, little examples of, um, few examples of enforcement. Um, and there's, there's a number of reasons for that. I, I think at the political level, Canada, as a member of the G7, wants to be seen as very aggressive in this area, particularly when it comes to Russia. They want to be seen as a leader in imposing sanctions. Um, so I think at the political level, you have that movement. And, and the, at the bureaucratic level, they just haven't caught up and they haven't had the resources, frankly, to keep up with that. That's a theme that we've seen. Um, and I'm just going to throw this one over to Stacey a little bit, that when we've talked about the UK and the EU, and particularly the EU and the member states, but also in the UK, we've got this developing infrastructure. So you may have, there may have been sanctions in the past, but you didn't have the sanctions authority to provide guidance. You didn't have the enforcement. I mean, do you want to talk a little bit about how that's evolved in both the, the UK Stacey and in the EU, because it sounds like Canada is is kind of along that same path. Yeah, and it, it's very interesting, John, you picked up on two points that we are seeing in the UK in particular around the lack of um, bodies on the ground in the enforcement authorities to deal with, for example, license applications and um, push forward enforcement. Um, and it's similar across EU member states. And I think it's indicative of the Russian sanctions regime biting um, in these countries, you know, in activities on the ground in these countries in ways that the other sanctions packages just haven't in the past. The, the EU on the guidance front has moved more quickly um, than the UK. You know, it, it's the first sanction-specific regime where the EU has published FAQs. There, there, there wasn't that level of guidance um, under any of the other sanctions regimes that was in commission um, opinions and the like. The UK hasn't gone as far as um, FAQs. There is a statutory guidance, um, which is very much strict descriptive of the prohibitions that are in place. So I think that is a, a real gap on the UK side. Um, and now that's not to say there hasn't been criticism of the EU um, FAQs. Um, in some places, they've contradicted what the the, the law say, um, and there's there, there's there's um, disparate um, interpretation um, across the EU member states. But I think there's been that move to adopt a, a US approach, um, but we're still somewhat lagging. Great. And John, why don't you talk a little bit more about kind of the developments in terms of the Canadian sanctions authorities 
guidance, um, enforcement, that sort of thing? Yeah, so um, the, the Canadian Sanctions Authority, I'd say the administrative authority is Global Affairs Canada, which is ultimately headed by our Minister of Foreign Affairs. And Global Affairs Canada, or we call them GAC for short, um, does administer a sanctions permit process. So in Canada, and um, this may be a little different than other jurisdictions, but in Canada, our Minister of Foreign Affairs has the ability to issue a permit or authorization that allows you to undertake any activity that might be prohibited by the sanctions. We don't have a Congress telling us you know, what, are, what licensing we can or can't do. Um, so it's it's um, there's a wide discretion on the part of our minister to allow that. So there is a bit of a process where you apply for you can apply for a permit. Global Affairs Canada handles that process, uh, and then um, you know we often use that process to get a no permit required letter. Um, but that uh, that's kind of the role I'd say of of GAC in terms of investigations and actual enforcement. That's in the hands of the RCMP. So the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, our federal police force in Canada, is responsible for investigating um, sanctions violations. There is some enforcement at the border um, if someone's bringing across um, goods uh, either um, coming in or going out of Canada that could be subject to a sanctions program that would be administered by the Canada Border Services Agency, probably not unlike what U.S. Customs does. But for the most part, when we talk about sanctions enforcement in Canada, we're talking about the RCMP enforcing that through investigations. And so here's another big contrast in Canada versus the U.S. and I think even the U.K. now. Um, we do not have uh, civil enforcement of sanctions, um, other than some of that import-export stuff that CBSA might do. But for our financial sanctions, the only option is a criminal option. Uh, and so that presents a couple of challenges. One, obviously, for the enforcement authorities, um, if they are going to get a penalty, they're going to have to do a full investigation. They're going to have to prosecute the company or individual before a court, court's going to have to find that individual guilty and then a penalty is imposed. We don't have an administrative or civil penalty. We don't have strict liability here in Canada. So you do not see uh, the same level of enforcement as you would in the United States or other jurisdictions. The other point, we don't have deferred prosecution agreements here in Canada, at least not that you can apply in the sanctions or export control contacts. We have that for anti-corruption. But because of that, you don't see settlements. Um, so when you have an absence of a lot of enforcement and settlements, uh, as well as an absence of settlements, again, um, you don't uh, get much guidance as to how the government is viewing these um, uh, is viewing the interpretation of these sanctions obligations. Yeah, that, that last point is one that I do want to drill down on a little because with OFAC, you know, there's usually about 20 enforcement actions or so a year. They're usually the result of settlements and they're civil enforcement actions. And that's setting aside the criminal cases. Most of the criminal cases in the U.S. are not particularly helpful in terms of compliance because they're mostly willful. I mean, by definition, they have to be willful. And so the criminal actions, you can tell your clients, you know, don't try to violate sanctions intentionally and then hide it. And that's, you know, a lesson that you don't need to spend a lot of time on. But the, the civil actions are much more interesting usually because they will be companies that were often trying to get things right. They'll, they'll highlight issues that you see in your everyday compliance practice that um, companies got wrong and you can see kind of how badly they got in trouble for getting them wrong. I, I mean, did, how do you deal with compliance issues if you're not getting any sorts of lessons from, you know, I guess it's the RCMP in terms of, and, and I guess, you know, to start with, are you getting any lessons from these enforcement actions in the criminal context? And if, if not, I mean, how do you go about trying to figure out what the agencies are really interested in as an enforcement priority? Yeah, so it's, it's a great question because in Canada now, if you look at um, the number of enforcement cases there's really in the i'd say in the last 10 years there's been maybe two successful enforcement cases on the sanction side a handful of attempts 
at uh, enforcement or charges being brought under sanctions. Um, so there's very, very little. Um, and that just uh, increases, I would say, the importance of having guidance from the Canadian government, which we, we don't have. Um, and when you have that absence of guidance, there's a couple of ways to deal with that. One is um, to use the permit application process. When you've got something that is unclear and you need clarity from the government, you can apply for a permit and, and they have to they have to process that permit application. That involves an initial determination as to whether those activities you describe are prohibited. And there may be cases where they are not prohibited. That does happen. And in those cases, Global Affairs Canada will provide you with a letter saying, we've reviewed this and we're not going to process the permit application because those activities don't engage the prohibitions. That essentially becomes a comfort letter to proceed. Um, the other uh, option is really, unfortunately, um, in a vacuum of guidance, you tend to look at other jurisdictions. And I know some Canadian companies might look to the United States or the UK or the EU, where either um, there's administrative guidance or guidance right within the legislation in how to interpret some of these concepts, ownership and control being an example of that, at least until very recently here in Canada. Yeah, I mean, I, I and, and I did want to follow up on this comfort letter process because this sounds like something that OFAC still theoretically has, but it's got so many irons in the fire that it's very hard to get, you know, timely responses to requests for comfort letters. It, do you get, I guess, do you get timely responses? And if so, kind of just can you describe what timely means in the Canadian sense and OFAC sense? It often means longer, and I would guess. Yeah, so there, there's no legislated timelines um, for processing or responding to permit applications. Um, we've had some go over two years before we hear back. Um, what has happened with the Russia sanctions is this has all really come to a head, I would say, in Canada, because up until the Russian sanctions, um, uh, there was still a lot of activity, I would say, on the sanction side. But those sanctions targets were countries like you know, Iran, Syria, uh, Burma, Bel Belarus, uh, and others where um, their financial institutions, their companies, their investors were not really integrated into the international financial system like you see with Russian banks uh, now. And so when we had the Russia sanctions, particularly the post-invasion sanctions come into force in February, around February 24th of last year, um, they, those were really the most impactful sanctions we've had in modern history, I would say, from Canada's perspective, and maybe even likely in respect of our allies. And that has generated all kinds of questions about how we interpret this legislation. There's been over 700 permit applications made to Global Affairs Canada. They only have the resources really they have a handful of people that are managing that permit process. They're in the process of hiring more, creating a larger sanctions bureau. Um, but it has been overwhelming for them and has really brought things um, to uh, almost a standstill. So now when we're applying for permits, even to get that no permit required letter, that kind of comfort letter, uh, we're waiting months for a response. So it has really started to grind to a halt here in Canada. Stacy, what about what are you seeing in the UK and and with the EU permitting process? Similar resource strains, or can you describe kind of how long the process takes and what you're seeing from in terms of resources of the regulators? Yeah, so I, it is very similar on the UK side, and particularly in the the, the weeks and early months following the invasion. I'm aware of license applications that are still outstanding um, at the moment. Um, so it's 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 months, if not years, for license applications to be processed. But what we have seen on the UK side um, is the imposition for the first time of general licenses. Um, and what we are seeing, um, and only just recently, um, a new general license has been introduced to allow receipt of funds from sanctions targets um, below a cap of 200000 
thousand. Um, we've also seen general licences for bond restructurings, um, and I'm aware that that has been one specific licences have been granted. Obviously, are now looking at how do they streamline the process and actually where do they want to target their resources um, on the specific licensing front by looking at introducing more and more general licences. So I think we're, we're we're somewhat moving to a more US model, um, but we're not quite there in terms of the numbers yet. And John, what about general licenses? Is can, is that, does Canada do, do anything like that? It's it's a great point. We have the authority for general licenses, or what we might call general permits, in in our language up here in Canada. Um, they have been used intermittently in the past. Um, I recall even 10, 15 years ago, general permits being used from time to time. Uh, right now, I think when we need them the most, <laughs> with respect to a lot of these issues that are coming up again and again, where it's pretty clear that um, something can be done um, um, from a policy point of view, but technically is prohibited by the sanctions. Um, unfortunately, the government isn't using them. We're encouraging them to take a hard look at using general permits. Um, that's a big, another big distinction between Canada and the U.S. where we're finding things that are permitted in the U.S. or even the U.K. or EU under general licenses are not permitted in Canada. Um, as soon as someone gets on our sanctions list, our equivalent of the SDN list here in Canada, um, everything is prohibited with them, subject to minor exceptions, you know, if they owe you money arising, you know, from a time before they were sanctioned. Um, but other than that, you cannot do anything with that per person's property or facilitate anything with that person's property. And so um, uh, things like paying um, taxes, in Russia, uh, intellectual property protection, something like, um, I think you have a general license 31 or 13 that might deal with that. We have nothing like that in Canada, um, providing uh, in some cases um, certain legal services uh, to designated persons. No general licensing around that in Canada. And the other point is in Canada, we don't have winding down provisions. So a number of, the t a number of times when we see financial, Russian financial institutions being sanctioned by the U.S., there's a winding down period of, of you know, 30, 60, 90 days. You can wind down transactions. None of that happens in Canada. There's no winding down period. And so we have this issue where um, uh, a Russian bank is sanctioned in Canada um, often we find, especially in the early days, you know, when Spurbank was sanctioned by Canada and a few others, and they weren't sanctioned by the U.S., that created all kinds of issues. But eventually, when they were sanctioned by the U.S., there were still those exceptions and winding down periods. So people were free to engage in certain transactions with those Russian banks, um, but uh, under U.S. law, but not under Canadian law. And that created some real challenges that, that unfortunately continue to exist today. Yeah, I mean, it's a great point about, you know, the different general licenses. And I think that that is just a really good example of how it takes time to build san sanctions infrastructure because OFAC has learned from various programs where there's going to likely be some sort of confusion or some sort of just mass licensing requests, you know, in terms of wind down, in terms of payment of taxes. And so when they come out with a new program, they often have these general licenses that are kind of built into the program from the start because it's just from experience that they know those are going to be there. They've worked out over time what the language of those general licenses should be. And so, so you don't run into these issues. Sometimes, you know, still they get surprised. I think back in 2018 when Roussal went on the SDN list, I think that there was a big surprise from OFAC as to what the consequences of that were. And so you saw these general licenses that essentially said, pretend like these companies aren't sanctioned for the next six months, or you saw the you know really active effort to get uh, Deripaska to divest so that they could go under 50%. So with that, I mean, I think that's a nice segue into ownership or control. And ownership and control, uh, it, can, it can be the either or, um, or it can be an and, conjunctive or disjunctive. But, um, you know, I guess we should lay the groundwork for the problem. So basically, you have 
companies and individuals who are on sanctions lists. And that makes it easy. You know, you put their name into a screening software and assuming you have enough description of the individual, you can figure out that they're sanctioned. And once they're sanctioned, you know, it, it's there are general licenses, but for the most part, the Canadian rule is pretty much true in the US and I think it's true in the EU and the UK. You pretty much can't deal with the sanctioned party. The problem is, is that if, if that was where sanctions stopped, they'd be pretty easy to evade because if I go on a sanctions list and I can just put all my money in a company or, um, you know, and, and have a company do the same thing that I, I can't do lawfully and you could deal with the company even though I own it, then that wouldn't be much of a sanction. In the same way, if a company goes on the list and companies that it own can transact business without sanctions, then uh, you wouldn't, they'd just put all their resources in the new company or they could start a different company that they would own that wasn't sanctioned and you could, pretty, you could get around the sanctions quite easily. So over time, what the sanctions authorities have done is tried to come up with ways so that if you are sanctioned, you can't just move your funds or move your property elsewhere to an unsanctioned entity. And so that's where ownership or control comes in. And in the US side, I think what OFAC learned through experience, or at least I think they would tell you they learned through experience, was that ownership is a pretty easy test. It's still not that easy because figuring out who owns a company is often not that easy. And we'll talk about that. But ownership, you know, 50%, if you own 50%, you own a company. And if you own 50% of the company, then you have, then they're treated as subject to the same sanctions as you. Control is a little harder because, you know, there are a number of potential tests. There's board seats. There's, you know, control of the day-to-day -day operations. There's control of the big decisions that the company makes. And it's often hard to figure out who's actually in control of a company. And so OFAC has really deprioritized that test. I mean, control is still a factor in a number of sanctions programs, but it's really not one that for the most part OFAC looks to in, in terms of whether or not a, a company is actually sanctioned. It's really ownership that they look to. And the 50% rule, meaning if the company owns 50% or more, um, that there is, there is, uh, there, there, there is, treated as sanctioned in the same way as if they were on the list. Now, it makes it harder because you've got, at this point, sanctioned parties that aren't on the list and you have to figure it out yourself, but it is a pretty simple test to describe. Um, let's start with you, John. Uh, describe what Canada has done with this ownership or control issue in terms of the 50% rule in terms of ownership or what the, rule, the Canadian rule is, and then talk a little bit about control. Yeah, so um, in Canada, up until now, I would say, um, we have not had an ownership or control rule. So when you look at the prohibition on dealing with listed or designated persons, it essentially says you cannot engage in dealings with property owned, held, or controlled by or on behalf of a listed person. It makes no mention of what you do about um, companies that might be owned by listed persons or might be controlled by listed persons. So very, um, it has very broad language that would allow the government to probably say that if you're dealing with an entity 100% owned by a sanctioned oligarch, uh, even though that entity isn't listed, we still consider you to be prohibited from dealing in the property of that entity. Um, and so for many years, we have been encouraging our government to come out with guidance um, uh, similar to that of you know, what we see in, in the United States or the UK or the EU, just to provide certainty in those circumstances. In the absence of that, we have made uh, permit applications, like I mentioned before. And you know, in some cases, um, we were getting answers back that we were permitted to deal with entities that were 100% owned by sanctioned oligarchs when those entities themselves weren't listed. In other cases, we got determinations back saying, no, um, you can't deal with an unlisted or a non-listed entity that's owned or controlled by someone who's on the list. Um, so it very much uh, was an area of uncertainty for us in Canada. And I think as a default, essentially, you know, we'd be applying a either a 50% rule that 
you know you see in the US or other jurisdictions or a de facto control rule that you might see in the UK or the EU um, even though that wasn't really specified under Canadian law now just within the last few weeks the Canadian government has introduced an amendment to our sanctions legislation that creates a deemed ownership rule and essentially it says that you will um, that uh, a sanctioned person is deemed to own the property of an entity if that entity is controlled by the sanctioned person. And when it looks to whether the entity is controlled by the sanctioned person, it's it's got three criteria. And if you hit any one of them, that's sufficient to deem the entity's property to be owned by the sanctioned person. The first one is a straight up 50% rule. So if the sanctioned person holds directly or indirectly 50% or more of the uh, interest, uh, equity interest in the entity, then they're deemed to control that entity. They're deemed to own the property of that entity. The second one um, is a more challenging one and one that we're encouraging the government not to implement. And that is whether the sanctioned person is able directly or indirectly to change the composition or powers of the entity's board of directors. Uh, Meaning, theoretically, you could have a sanctioned person who, say, only has a 5%, 10% shareholding, but if you have the ability to appoint one of 12 directors, they will be deemed to own the property of that entity. And yes, yeah. So it's it's the way it's framed is if you can change the if you're able to change the composition of the board of directors. Um, so that and and I, I, I know when we'll talk about the EU uh, or I should say the UK control rules, um, they have something similar. Except I think they actually say a majority of the board, um, but that isn't specified here in the Canadian one. And then the third. Um, basis on which to deem this ownership is if the sanction, if it's reasonable to conclude, having regard to all the circumstances, that the sanctioned person is able directly or indirectly to really by any means direct the entity's activities. So just overall, you see, you kind of get a sense of what Canada is trying to do here with this proposed rule is to capture the U.S. 50% rule. That, that you have on the OFAC side, but also perhaps capture the de facto rules that you see in the UK and the EU. Unfortunately, with respect to that second one, they've gone much farther than any other jurisdiction uh, and I think have created quite a bit of uncertainty with it. And the third one, which is, you know, can they direct the entity's activities? I think that's um, probably similar to what you have in the UK and EU, but no guidance on what you might consider uh, those circumstances to be. And we've been told, this legislation is currently working its way through our parliament. We've been told that there will likely be no guidance by the time this legislation is implemented, probably within the next few weeks or month or so. Um, so we're, we're right on, we're on the leading edge here in Canada of, of, I think, a really interesting issue on how we deal with it. But unfortunately, um, it, it's going to be challenging when this comes into force. And Stacy, I think that's your segue. Uh, can you describe some of the challenges? Because I know that both the UK and the EU have much more of a control-based test than the US does. Um, why don't you talk about that? And then also the ownership test. Because my understanding is that the ownership test in the EU and the, maybe the UK is slightly different than the US. We, If we get 50%, you're captured. My understanding is you need 50.01%, at least under some of those jurisdictions. Yes, so UK and EU, we're a a more than 50% um, test. And where we've seen that come to light um, is entities that have sought divestment, but get home on the UK and EU side, but don't get home um, on the US side because they've taken it to that that 50%. Um, And I'm in full agreement with you, John, around the limbs that Canada are, are, are looking to introduce. And it's similar, particularly to the UK, um, which now has the ownership and control test in statute. But Canada has gone further than the UK. So on the UK side, it's the you know, 
beyond the, the, the ownership of the, the more than 50% test around shares and voting rights, um, it, we look at the right to appoint um, or remove the majority of the board. And then that third limb is whether it's reasonable to suspect that the sanctions target could direct that the affairs um, of the entity are conducted in accordance with their wishes. So it's really looking at more of a um, the sanctions target having a dominant um, influence um, and essentially de facto control over the operations um, of an organisation. Um, but an int- w- w- one point um, I, I think, and I mean, we may come on to this, is that under the UK, there's no automatic um, aggregation. And we've seen that come to light um, and recently from Gazprom, Neff, from Rosatom, where you know, almost the entirety, if not the entirety um, of the board and the, the senior exec team have been designated. Um, but the view has been taken that because it, it, it absent um, ab- aggregation, the sanctions do not flow down um, to the entities themselves who haven't been directly designated. Um, so we're seeing really um, interesting ch- compliance challenges around your true understanding of how um, some of these Russian entities um, are operated in day-to-day practice. So Stacey, so when John was talking about the proposed Canadian legislation, he was talking about various control tests, and one was, you know, pure ownership. But how does how did the UK and the EU deal with both board seats, and then also deal with kind of this dominant factor test, or or deal with that? And do you have has there been guidance on this, or enforcement examples that would help you figure it out? So, so no, no enforcement. Um, uh, well, at least on the criminal side. I mean, on the civil side, um, we, we've only had that um, civil penalty regime since 2017. It's still somewhat in its infancy. You know, we've had eight civil penalties um, in the six or, uh, or just shy of six years since it was imposed. So we don't have that bank um, of know-how or learnings around ownership and control. But the UK, um, so our Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation did several weeks ago update its monetary penalty guidance to give examples um, of what um, is expected to be considered when looking at ownership and control. Um, And there's lots of organisations that are just getting to grips with actually that implementation in practice. So it is looking at board seats, it's looking at charters, it's looking at the operational um, framework um, that these Russian um, entities um, are operating to. But what that does um, necessitate is having that level of engagement with a counterparty and a willingness to share some of this information to get you comfortable around whether or not the control test has been met. Interesting. And was there discussion, John, or is there discussion if the the proposed legislation gets revised about more factors? Because it sounds like what, you know, what the regulators on the other side of the Atlantic are looking at is is much more of a de facto control, no matter how it's defined. It sounds like there is part of that in the Canadian legislation, but not that many defined factors. And then this focus on one board seat, which I don't think, you know, even in the US would come close to meeting a definition of control in the sanctions programs that have it. Yeah, I, I think that's a critical point here that, um, you know, on the Canadian side, the proposed legislation just mentions these three factors it doesn't mention or i should they're not they're, they're criteria as to whether you're going to trigger control and therefore you know have the property of an entity deemed to be owned by a sanctioned person um there's no um detail within the legislative proposal as to how they would interpret that and one of the things we've been pushing the government is to say okay if, if you're going to put this in it's going to create a lot of challenges, but one way to address some, at least some of those challenges is to ensure you've got that guidance in place when this comes into force. Now, these amendments are part of a much larger budget bill, and I know you face that often in the U.S. as well. I mean, this is just you know a few lines in hundreds of thousands of lines of legislation, right? And so there hasn't been a lot of attention or um, a lot of... Uh, 
parliamentary hearings focused on what needs to be done before this comes into force. So unfortunately, we're going to be in a position where we're not going to have that guidance, but that is what we are pushing um, the administrators here in Canada, particularly at Global Affairs Canada, to do is let's get some guidance in place and published so that we see some factors, um, you know, something along the lines that you see in the EU, in the UK, whether it's in guidance or within their, their legislation. But some factors we can look to to assess whether um, these criteria are going to apply or not in any given situation. Yeah, that will be very helpful because I know just from the U.S. side, you know, I can think of, and I'm going to try and say this without making making sure that I'm not revealing who any of them are, but I can think of some very big U.S. companies that invest in companies overseas, and as a result of those investments, they get, you know, it, it, they're still a minority investor. The company doesn't become owned by that that U.S. company, but they get board seats. I mean, that's a pretty standard, um, you know trapping of investment when you invest in a company if you invest over a certain amount you might you're not going to get a majority of the board seats and it's often not even close but you'll get you know one or two and if those one or twos are going to turn that company into one that you control i think there's going to be a real um question around you know not just with the russia sanctions but just generally as to what companies actually control and you'll have multiple controllers because if everybody who invests mm -hmm. gets a board seat and you've got 20 board seats then you potentially have 20 companies that would be deemed in control for sanctions purposes which would create a, a mess i think yeah and, and the other thing to keep in mind too I, I mean so far we're talking about this deemed ownership rule in the context of the prohibition so what we can or can't do without with an entity for example. Um, but Canada also has a new asset forfeiture mechanism that allows the government to seize and forfeit the assets owned, that's the language used, owned, held or controlled by a, a sanctioned person. And they could use this deemed ownership as part of that forfeiture mechanism as well. That's where things get extremely interesting. Yeah, that would get very interesting. Well, well, we'll watch for that. I mean, I guess the the other I did want to turn back to so, something that Stacy mentioned with respect to divestment. So, under on the US side, um, OFAC actually has guidance that tells companies that if there's 50% or more ownership, that as long as you do it without a a US person involvement, that the sanctioned party can divest or have the divest below the 50% threshold and then the company will become unsanctioned, assuming they're not listed. Is there a similar concept in both, you know, Stacey, we'll start with you. On the UK, EU side, how does divestment treat it? And then we'll turn it to John to talk about the Canadian side. So if, if, if there was divestment by the sanctions target, then the, the sanctions would be lifted, similar to as you're seeing in the US. I think where um, we're seeing more problematic is, is, is UK and EU entities looking to divest um, particularly from entities where there will be a benefit made to a sanctions target and how they can then lawfully proceed with that because there is a, a message of encouragement um, for divestment, but it still needs to be carried out lawfully. Um, so license applications may be needed. But again, going back to the points we were making earlier, there is a very much a, a lag absent there being a general license to get that permission um, to divest. And John, what about divestment from the Canadian side? Can you get under the threshold and and not be treated as sanctions and sanctioned anymore? I, I think um, uh, in Canada again, um, whether it's um, or just. <laughs> unsophisticated when it comes to these things or you know whether there's an intention on the part of the government just to maintain a very broad and uncertain sanctions regime that leads everyone to try and avoid doing anything connected to Russia. Um, that's an open question. Um, but unfortunately, there's just no guidance on it. And there's nothing in the proposed rule um, that would really provide clarity on that. The fact is, the way we've dealt with this up to now, and I expect we will continue to deal with it, is through the permit application process, unfortunately, which um, means that when you have those scenarios, uh, even where 
um, it looks consistent with the objectives of the sanctions in that it's encouraging divestment of the sanctioned person. They're being removed from the investment. Uh, we have one where they're being removed 100% from the investment, and we still don't it's taken months to get an answer from the government on that scenario in the in the permit application process, unfortunately, and we still don't have an answer. Um, unfortunately, we're we're stuck right now, and I, our best hope is that with this new deemed ownership rule, we'll have questions like that answered in guidance from Global Affairs Canada. Yeah, I was just about to say that, that, that it brings out a very interesting point around even where there is um, or, or it's purported that there has been divestment to get below the ownership um, or the control um, test, there is still a, a reluctance that I'm seeing on, on many UK and EU entities to continue to transact because they're calling into question, are these true divestments, particularly around the, 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 the timing of the divestment and even picking up on some of the UK factors that have been, um, that, that you're um, requested to take into account or encouraged to take into account of looking at involvement of proxies, um, operational steps to ensure that designated persons cannot exercise control but you know, really going down to the minutiae around who is running meetings and um, there's just that there's not that visibility so I think you know there, there's the risk adverse approach to continuing to trade with 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 companies where there has been divestment yeah I can, I can see that on the Canadian side for sure where mm-hmm. you know you've been dealing with an entity that's you know 75% owned by a listed person, they now tell you, okay, um, my shareholding has been reduced to 25%. Um, but you've got to imagine that the structures that were in place before where that person was exerting control in various manner over the operations of that company just don't disappear. And that you really would, especially I think in Canada, now that we're going to have a de facto control regime, you're really going to have to dive into um, whether any element of control still exists. And, and as Stacy says, going right down to, you know, who's running the meetings and so forth. So it, it'll be a challenge on the Canadian side as well. Yeah, that's where we see on the U.S. side control or control-like issues come up the most, and that is with divestment, because there's a lot of instances where you have to be convinced that the divestment is actually a real divestment and not one where it's been divested to proxies, and then this person who has now nominally less than 50% ownership is essentially still running the company, because that would even under the 50% rule, it has to be a real divestment. And so if essentially you're maintaining de facto ownership of more than 50% of the company, even though you can nominally point to the fact that you have um, sold your assets or what, what I've seen a few times recently is given your assets to a to a relative who is not sanctioned, um, is that a real divestment? And that really gets into control issues because you know on the one hand, you can look at the paper and we'll get the shared certificates and we'll know that it is a real divestment and we can talk to local lawyers in the country to make sure that that would be an, an enforceable divestment. So that's there. But if the person who has divested is maintaining con- the same sort of control as when they own 75% in your example, John, it becomes a really hard question as to whether you can say that the 50% rule is satisfied and it really kind of borders over onto issues of control. So it's really hard to get away from that control issue at the margins, even though the U.S. has tried to get away from it. All right. Well, I just wanted to kind of throw it out to both of you to, to have the last word. Why don't we start with you, Stacey? Um, you know, talk about ownership control or anything else that we should know about from the, the EU and the U.K. that is coming forward, especially in light of this most recent sanctions package from about 10 days ago. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think one point I'd, I, I want everyone um, really to look at is this: the, the Russian sanctions regime has been the, the, the first real key sanctions package in a post-Brexit world. 
um, as someone sitting in the UK, it's a requirement that I also always have to mention Brexit um, in any discussions. But we are seeing you know, considerable di- um, divergence between the EU um, and the UK itself. Um, you know, on, on the most recent sanctions package, there's the issue of timing um, around when the EU are, are, are introducing sanctions. You know, if we look at, for example, the legal advisory um, um, prohibition has been in place in the, U- in the EU from October, still not been introduced in the UK, despite the discussions around its implementation taking um, place at the at that time. Um, so we, we, we do have key areas of divergence in the packages. But I think on the, the, the kind of two key from an ownership and control perspective is that there's no automatic aggregation um, of shareholdings or voting rights on the UK side, um, unless there's a joint arrangement um, or sanctions targets essentially controlling um, the shares and powers of the others. Whereas the EU um, has looked to align with the US and there is automatic um, aggregation. But in a second point, and it is going back to your points around you know, deemed um, ownership and control, there is a rebuttable presumption on the EU side that if you can show, you know, down the um, for subsidiaries and down the contractual chain, if you can show that the sanctions target, whether individual or entity, doesn't exercise um, control and won't benefit from a, a transaction, you can rebut. The ownership and control test, but that doesn't exist um, on the UK side. So I think it's just really an appreciation of the differences um, post post Brexit and how sanctions are um, you know, on the EU member states and on the UK side. Yeah, one would expect that that might only grow as the yeah. UK and the EU kind of move in different directions. Yeah. Um, John, last word on Canada and sanctions and ownership and control. Yeah, uh, for sure, I'd say really two points. One, stay tuned because there are going to be some big developments here within the next few weeks or month or so when this legislation does come into force on ownership and control. And hopefully we're going to get some guidance. Um, GAC is creating this new sanctions bureau. They've been given about $70 million or so to use at least in part to do that. So we're going to see um, hopefully some results from that shortly. And the second point I'd raised too is what I mentioned earlier on the asset forfeiture side. Canada really has um, become the leader in that area in implementing an asset forfeiture mechanism that allows them to forfeit the assets of sanctioned oligarchs or any sanctioned person and use those assets for reparations, rebuilding of Ukraine uh, and other purposes. This ownership and control rule in particular in the context of those asset forfeitures will be very interesting to watch how that develops. Um, And we've got at least one test case that's now moving forward with um, funds held by indirectly by Roman Abramovich here in Canada that the government is seeking a forfeiture order over. Wow. So that'll be something to watch. And I think, you know, your point about staying tuned is really an important one because my my observation from the Russian sanctions generally and this multilateral approach to sanctions is that once you start building the infrastructure, once you start appropriating funds for sanctions authorities, once you start the sanctions authorities start giving guidance, that doesn't go away even if that particular program that um, prompted that goes away. And so I think, you know, We are in a brave new world where um, multilateral sanctions authorities are going to be the rule going forward and not the exception. Uh, So I wanted to thank you both for coming on on the podcast. Uh, I really appreciate it. Um, I know that you all said some nice things about the podcast at the beginning, and I, I appreciate that as well. But I will say that to the extent that our listeners like listening, um, and I hope they do, it's because of guests like John and Stacy who really bring some very important insights from around the world about trade law and sanctions and, and all things international trade. So thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Tim, and thank you, Stacy. It was a pleasure. Stay sanctions-free, everybody. Produced by HeartCast Media.